1: If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed.
0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OutofLimitsRadio I'm your host Ryan. So, if you live in the U.S. and you've been going to the grocery store lately, have you noticed that your grocery bills are probably increasing by forty or fifty percent? You turn on the news, you listen to what the government's telling you. They're like, "Oh, well, this is just uh, temporary inflation, transitionary inflation, and then just temporary because you know there's no way this is going to turn into hyperinflation. It wouldn't have anything to do with all the money printing that they've been doing at all, But it?" Our featured guest, who's making his second appearance, second appearance on our show tonight, is very sharp. He is fired up, and he's got a lot of terrific insights. On the U.S. and global economy. He's also going to cover the housing market, which if you're trying to buy a house right now, it's impossible. For some reason, every house is ridiculously expensive. I don't understand why. Maybe it's going sort of to do inflation. He's also going to look at places and industries that you might want to consider investing in. Overall, I'm thrilled to have him back. Let us begin tonight's show. It is a great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Harry S. Dent Jr. He's not only the face of Dent Research, he's also a best-selling author and one of the most outspoken financial editors in America. You can learn more about him by going to harrydent.com, where you can receive a free weekly newsletter. Harry, welcome back to our show.
1: Yeah, nice to be back, Brian.
0: Thank you. You know, I listened to one of your recent interviews on the Rich Dad podcast, Robert Kiyosaki, and I, I couldn't help but notice that you had such kind words to say about the current leadership in the country, about what they were doing. So I'm just curious, from your perspective... When you look at who is in charge of the money supply, who's making all the big decisions, where are we headed for the foreseeable future, at least in the next six months?
1: Okay. Here's what basically happened. Back in the 80s, I was the first guy because I was consulting to new venture clients dealing with young new baby boom customers instead of old Bob Hope ones for the Fortune 100 that I was consulting to before that. So I really got into this baby boom thing and saw oh how big this boom was going to be because it's such a massive generation as they would earn and spend more money, raise their kids, buy houses, and all this predictable stuff. So that's how I got known. The problem with that was I was predicting that in the eighties and said, but you know, at by two thousand seven this gravy train is going to end. The greatest boom in history is going to end. And what happened is when we hit the 2008 recession, oh, it wasn't just another recession. Oh, it was looking like the Great Depression, like 1930. Banks and financial institutions collapsing, excess debt, a deep downturn, again, more like a depression than a recession. And that's when something changed. The central banks stepped in at first strongly to keep the banks from failing and then when they realized by lowering interest rates and injecting money in, it didn't cause anybody to borrow and rekindle business because consumers and businesses had already overborrowed in the greatest boom in history with artificially and, and low and falling interest rates. That's when they went on emergency, you know, uh, stimulus. And, and they've been, we've been on that ever since. Unprecedented money printing from late 2008 into the repo crisis through that. And then when COVID hit, they not only upped the money printing uh, exponentially, but then they added trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus. So so we've been, the, the central banks don't, since they don't understand the economy, what drives it, you know, uh, they didn't understand why it had boomed so strong. They thought it was their genius and their monetary policies. They didn't understand why it was weakening. and And so they just kind of panicked and they just kept stimulating and stimulating. And and the problem is you have to stimulate exponentially more. Um, It's like they became drug pushers. So the only way to keep going is to get on artificial drug, you know, like crack or something or speed or whatever, you know, anything, you know, that they put us on a drug, and it takes more and more of the drug. And now we are here where 12 years later, 12 to 13 years later, with with a death bubble, it's way bigger than anything in history, but that's not the big problem now, right? And the problem is, to cure the debt bubble crashing in 2008 forward, they had to create this giant financial asset bubble. So we have the weirdest thing in history, and it's totally because central banks overplayed their hand, didn't know what they're doing, thought, well my gosh, you know once you started pumping up all this stuff to avoid a recession, you get deeper and deeper in, and that means you're going to have a bigger collapse. So they just had to keep this bubble going. So we have a bubble that should have peaked in 2007 and crashed and gotten rid of a lot of debt and excess financial assets and then going along like we've done in history in the past. Now we have the greatest bubble in history and this great, great bubble that now really has been 12 years on top of the 95 to 2000 and 2002 to 2007 bubbles. This has occurred at a time when the economy's been very weak and we've had excessive debt. So so what I've been saying is going to happen they they we should have had the big downturn in 2008-9 and it should have lasted to 2010 like 29 to 32 last time we had a big bubble crash and a debt debt bubble and financial asset crisis. Nope, they cut it off, stimulated the economy artificially. Now, look what's happened. All of this stimulus, with like tens of trillions of dollars of monetary, now 10 trillion probably globally of fiscal massive amounts of stimulus. And all we've been doing is growing at 1.6%. Now, first of all, that should be a hint to anybody. If you have to put this much yeah. stimulus for 12 years and all you do is grow at 1.6% and barely keep alive, ask yourself what we would have had without it. We would have had a depression and deflation in prices instead of very modest inflation. So now we're at what I call the opposite in, in the 1930s, what I call winter season after a big fall bubble, boom and debt bubble and financialize asset bubble. We had the big crash at first, 2932, then some stimulus, nothing like today, but still substantial stimulus, had a mini bubble, and then then a, a moderate depression at the end, and then we were over it. We shook out all this debt over 10 years, but most of it right off the bat. We're going to have to have the big kahuna now between 2021 and 2023. Probably 2022 is going to be the worst year. and I think this could be starting within a week or so because they just push this off, push this off. And and it gets to the point where the diminishing returns on the stimulus and the debt keeps building up and the bubbles. Right now, my my most important statistic in the world now is five hundred twenty-five trillion, not billion, trillion dollars of financial assets in the world. Now that's sitting on top of about 250 or 60 trillion of debt. But, but what's happened here is to cure the debt crisis and keep it from falling apart and sinking the economy in depression, they've created a financial asset bubble that's almost twice, that is basically twice as big. Jeez. And now this has to deleverage. And, then, and so, so again, and I can just look back at history, it's very simple. When you get financial bubbles, the stocks will end up going down 70 to 90, real estate 30 to 50, commodities 70 to 80, and, and bonds, you know, 20 to 40, depending on how risky they are. Okay. So just to shake out this financial asset bubble and just get financial assets back down to reality, which includes a lot of loans failing because bonds and loans are financial assets too, we would see 250. 50 trillion roughly. It's usually 40 to 50 percent of that financial asset bubble has to go away. 225 to 250 trillion dollars of financial assets, which is real money. This is in people's real estate and equity, in their their bonds and stocks and their brokerage accounts. Forget the bank accounts. That's nothing. Most of people's financial wealth and money. Um, and wealth is in these financial assets. It's just going to disappear and never and not come back like it did 29 to 32. You know, after 29 top, it took 25 years to get back to those levels for stocks, and 12 years for real estate. And after even the 60s uh, boom top, it took almost that long took that long for financial assets. But the crash wasn't as big. So this is a major thing coming, and everybody now trained to think. Well, the government always bails us out, and the government always prints more money, <laughs> and somehow we don't stay down for long, and the stock market goes to new highs. I'm telling you, you're not going to see a new high in this stock market when it cracked for decades, if then, in real estate, maybe not in our lifetime, because wow. real estate has got poor demographics behind it. Um, something's happening in real estate that we'll, we'll never see again, and it's just starting that the baby boom generation that bought all this real estate and drove it up in these bubbles, and, and, and on top of that with low interest rates and excessive stimulus stuff, baby boomers are going to start doing something that's not good for the economy and especially bad for real estate, and it's called
0: dying. <laughs> so if you're if you're in <laughs> real then, estate right now, do you think it, it might be a good time to, to sell? I mean because they're dying, do you yeah. think that it might be a good time Absolutely. to sell
1: your house? For- what it means is when real estate goes down, it's going to be very, very slow to come back because baby boomers are going to be dying in increasing numbers into 2042. That's a long time from now, 21 years, okay? 21, 22 years. So so it means when the millennials come along, and they'll be coming along a couple of years from now, driving the economy and buying houses again, their demand for housing is going to be offset by the selling of baby boomers. So they're spending will still drive the economy up, just not as strong as the baby boomers and not for as long. But housing is going to be different. Most other any, any area of the economy, what I do, peak spending, 46, 47, 48, depending on the country. So I can lag for the birth index and the demographics for that peak spending and say, here's how big and how long the boom. I can do it for housing. I can do it for automobiles, anything. Even for financial assets like stocks and people, you know, retirement. Housing is the one where I have to not just have a lag for the peak spending, I have to subtract the dyers. So I have to have peak buyers, which is 42 today for real estate. And I have to subtract the the dyers at, at uh, 79. Okay. I, and when you subtract the baby boomers, then real estate basically will fall and have very little upward momentum for decades. So so stocks will come back in the next boom, maybe to something like these levels, probably not quite because it's so bubbly. Real estate will never be the same. That's one of my quotes in my books now in okay. my newsletters. Real estate will never be the same. And everybody's trained to think, <laughs> and especially with the stock price, they think, well, real estate... Always goes up because they ain't making no more of it. and There's more people. No. In the developed countries, there's less people. Ask Japan, whose real estate peaked in 1991 and is still on the floor 30 years
0: later. She's, so if you're in the process of buying a house right now, do you think it might be worthwhile to sit on the sidelines for maybe two years? Or do you think Absolutely.
1: You should... Now, the, by the way, I have to uh, do on uh, your <laughs> honest. I am buying a house right at the top of the market in Puerto Rico, but we have a different dynamic. Puerto Rico has all these affluent Americans moving in for these tax advantages, which are off the charts, uh, attractive. And and so the gringo parts of Puerto Rico are booming and probably will boom until they cut off this tax program. But I wouldn't, if I was sitting in Miami or New York or San Francisco or LA, some of the most overvalued places, uh, yes, I would not buy real estate. And, and my best way To judge this, very practical, since real stocks go all up together and real estate booms kind of different times and different degrees more because of the quality of the area and stuff. Look at your real estate. Number one measure, what was it worth at the bottom of the last recession? Remember, real estate stocks bottomed in early 2009, but real estate typically bottomed between 2011 and 12. What was it worth at the last bottom? That is your minimum downside from my point of view. So you look at that, and say, Okay, oh, yeah, I got this, bought this house for 300. Now it's worth 500. But oh, it was worth 250. Ooh, and, and the blast. Bought, oh, my gosh, I could lose 50%. Now, if you're in Omaha, and you look at that statistic, and it says, Oh, well, yeah, it's only gone up I'm, I, I would only lose 10 or 20%. I'd say, Okay, fine, buy a house, don't worry about it. If you're in the areas, the greater the bubble, the greater the bus, and that's typically the Northeast and, and the west coast and, and and some of the bigger cities and stuff that's where you have to really be cautious and in general this is going to be a reset in real estate back to reality stocks again in a in a bubble in a long-term bubble crash and you have to go back 29 to 32 to see such a thing okay the the, the real estate will go down 30 to 50 percent and stocks will go down 70 to 90 percent so this is not I hate to say this, now. I have to tell people, <laughs> this is not a time to listen to your stockbroker or financial advisor. <laughs> these people do people, keep them on the right track most of the time. They are not going to see a reset this global, this across asset categories. They're going to say, oh, yeah, but we have you diversify. We got you in bonds and real estate and these stocks and defensive stocks and global stocks. Forget it. Look at 2008-9. Ask yourself what didn't go down, and look back at the little flash crash we had when COVID first hit, and it looked like an instant depression. Everything went down except for the highest quality, AAA corporates and 10- and 30-year and treasury bonds. Everything else went down, corporate bonds, gold, stocks, real estate. So Jeez.
0: it's, it's- – this Pretty is great. a
1: time to get out of the way
0: and let it happen. And you can
1: have to wait a, a couple years to start buying anything again. And I know this sounds rash, but history says this is a once in a lifetime event. And that's precisely why nobody's going to see it coming, particularly your financial advisor.
0: Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Harry, in our last conversation, which is about two years ago, you actually said something that's had a lasting impact on me. And I want to bring it to the audience's attention because you had discussed about not only were you passionate about the financial markets, but you were passionate about all different types of periods in history, and you are even interested about space. So the fact that you were so passionate in studying beyond uh, financial markets, I thought that was really fascinating, and that piqued my interest, and I started doing the same thing. I started looking at patterns in history to try to gauge what was going to happen today. And that being said, it led me to Um, you know, look at really examine some of the work of other people like Gerald Salente, Dr. Ron Paul, Robert Kiyosaki, and then there's also Martin Armstrong and Peter Schiff. And I want to bring all these gentlemen to your attention because they all seem to have a distinct perspective and viewpoint of where things are going to happen. The one that really kind of strikes in my mind is Martin Armstrong because he has said repeatedly that, okay, you're not going to see a currency, at least in the US, get canceled because it hasn't been canceled before. He goes, If you look at Weimar Germany, they printed a ton of money, but the only reason why their currency collapsed and hyperinflated was because there was a collapse in confidence in the government. If you look at the US, do you think that that is going to be the catalyst? Do you think that there's a point right now where people are just on the cusp of losing faith faith in the US and, hypothetically speaking, do you think that collapse in confidence in the US government is stronger than what is happening in Europe? When they are in total lockdown and they don't seem to enjoy some of the prosperity that recently open states in the U.S. have.
1: Well, I'll give you a couple answers to that. The first question is look back at the mini depression, the temporary depression, which would have turned much worse without this massive stimulus. What currency went up? Let me think. Oh, it was the U.S. dollar, 27 percent. Oh, what did gold do? Oh, gold. Gold is the ultimate currency, down 28% in 2008 when the shit hit the fan, okay? That's the truth, because this is a reset of all financial assets. You think stocks have bubbled? Yeah. Real estate's bubbled? Yeah. Bonds have bubbled with unprecedented low interest rates pushed down by governments artificially. Well, gold has bubbled. Gold bubbled up as much as stocks when it hit, you know, 2089 and then 1934 before that, and it crashed. 50% Fifty percent, and it's bounced, It's going to crash again. Come All financial assets are going to go down, just back to reality. A little lower at first, just to overreact. But and what happens when that happens is people are going to go to the best currency and to the best bonds and cash. That's what going to be. So cash is going to be king. U.S. dollar is drifting down right now. Will drift down probably in the early stages of this downturn, like it did in 2008, till people realize, oh, oh. Oh no, the government's losing control. Oh oh, this is going to be worse than two thousand eight. Oh, banks are failing again. Oh, they, they they can't even bail them out this time. So bad, it will be the U.S. dollar and the ten and, and thirty-year Treasury bonds and AAA corporates that will make you money. I, I'm literally saying people say, well, why would I buy a thirty-year Treasury bond at two point three two percent today? You know when inflation's two percent. It's because those rates are going to fall to near zero, and they've locked in that 2.3% for 30 years. And if you calculate what happens, I calculated what happens if that interest rate falls not to zero, the 10 years will fall to zero. But let's say 0.4, 0.5% from 2.3, 2.4 today, it's over a 40% return for holding that bond. Not from the interest, but from the appreciation of a bond that is paying you 2.3% when no, nobody else can get more than 04 on a treasury safe risk bond. So that's the safe haven. Everybody's telling people, oh, gold's a safe haven because it's the true money and people will flee the US dollar. They are not gonna flee the US dollar. There's not enough gold to back and, and do transactions. It's never gonna be the primary money again. And then they say, oh, Bitcoin's the safe haven. It's the new currency. It, it can be the next gold and can be the backing of new digital currencies, but it's not. It's in its infancy stage. Bitcoin, the best way to look at Bitcoin, just like the dot-com stocks, and by dot-com, I mean the late-stage internet retailers like Amazon that came out of nowhere and, and Webvan, and tons of them that failed. But the 90s bubble in tech stock and in internet, that was broader internet. It was the dot-coms that came at in and really bubbled up and crashed. 95 percent. That's what Bitcoin and crypto. It is the beginning of Internet 2.0, the digitization of all financial assets in the world, the Internet of finance and money, which is a big deal ultimately, but it's in its infancy. And you have a baby bubble like the dot coms from late 98 to 2000, and they crash, lead the crash. And then you have the daddy bubble, that goes into now. Well, we, we are, we're about to see the dot-com bubble burst. Bitcoin will be the worst place to be, and I'm gonna be the first one <laughs> to be playing the trumpet and buying it when it goes down to something like 4,000, because it's probably gonna go to how I agree with Kathy Woods long-term, to become the gold standard and to build enough to become the gold-like backing of a whole global digital system that transcends countries, which is what we need to have, ultimately, it would have to be worth half a million dollars, a million dollars, but it, it's going to go, it's going to crash first, and then if it survives and proves to be survivable, uh, in Ethereum and some others, and, and some of these will, it'll be the next big thing. So, and you have this dimension. I think he meant, you know, like space. You know, space. people are like, well, how much can you do with space? Space is the next frontier in technology too. So, I'd be looking. To buying the most leveraged technology places like the crypto space and Bitcoin and block it's really blockchain and and things like you know the successful ventures in space that's going to be the leading edge of technology internet's going to be everybody's gonna have internet yeah it gets better and better but that's the new frontiers um, in technology and then the other thing in developed countries it's going to be aging so if you're in things like pharmaceuticals and vitamins and health and and, and nursing homes, my number one sector for developed countries uh, is nursing homes. They will not be able to build enough nursing homes because it's the last thing the baby boomer is going to do in healthcare and in real estate. Uh, it's a real estate play and it's a healthcare play because because nursing homes, the life, you know, average death is what seventy nine or life expectancy seventy nine, but nursing homes are full of people, mostly women, late seventies into mid eighties. Uh, And and they peak about 84. So that'll be the strongest demographic segment in developed countries where the baby boom is a bigger demographic force relatively than the millennials. Now, the other place you invest when this thing crashes, you go in the emerging countries. You don't go to the ones that already boom like China that already overbuilt itself for decades to come. And its demographics are the first to peak. You go to Southeast Asia, you go to India, a lot of places. But those are the two primary places. They're going to outperform. So you get out of stuff now. You get into safe bonds, that sort of stuff, and then you buy the best tech sectors that that will have gone through their baby bubble emerging stage and are now ready to move mainstream, like the internet did uh, in in the 90s forward, and automobiles did, and you know, and uh, um, after the Great Depression, 42 to 65, and things like space. You know, So so you get in the leading sectors, cool. and then you'd have a diversified portfolio that can boom like crazy again.
0: Excellent. Well, i would be really interesting. I had no idea about investing in nursing homes, nursing home development or space. That, that's fantastic. And um, I wanted to circle back to something you just said about Bitcoin, about dropping down to 4000 I learned a very painful lesson about Bitcoin. I bought a little bit about it. I think I saw the 55,000, I went to 50,000, so I said, oh, you know, maybe there's a little bit. So I, I bought some and then it went down to like 30,000. But then I also thought yeah. about it I'm like, well, I just spent some money on Bitcoin, but then I also bought some silver coins and I have the silver coins that they're, you know, even if I didn't, even if the silver went to like zero or something, there's still intrinsic value in silver. So yeah. i I'm just kind of curious, like, uh, because gold and silver have intrinsic value. Why do you – do you think that uh, Bitcoin would, would carry out, I guess, the same kind of weight or relatively okay. speaking of remote the difference. weight?
1: They're still primarily – you look at history, and, 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 and you got to say more so now that they're no longer directly monetary. I mean we used to have silver coins and gold coins and gold actually backed currencies. Okay, That is no longer the case. Okay, So that's gone. But they still have that, some intrinsic values of commodity, and they have that monetary thing. The way it actually works out and again 2008 is the best example the commodities were the first to peak and crash the hardest they already saw most of their bubble burst uh from mid 2008 into 2009 okay um gold the difference is most commodities went down 75 percent the whole commodity index gold only went down 45 to 50 now silver is always more volatile. So gold went down more like the commodity index, but less than it would have relatively. Silver is one of the, the most volatile commodities and metals. So that's the way I see it. Gold and silver are doing pretty good right now. They may continue to edge up in the early stages of this downturn, but that's what they did in 2008. They edged up thinking, some people thinking bonds are good. They edged up at first, too. Uh, gold and stuff edged up but when 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 things went down it was the bonds that really spiked and were the safe haven and gold and silver gold went down thirty three percent in two months and silver went down fifty at the worst of the crisis so they hold up better in the commodity complex and in the next boom i I see in you know commodity cycles are a thirty year thing generation cycles are more like forty years uh, technology are more by like forty five years but the next commodity cycle will be roughly from 2023 into 2038 or 40. And I think that gold will do particularly well, not as good as Bitcoin or something, okay, which actually does become the real monetary gold standard if it does the right things and then blockchain. But it will be a, a commodity that has increasing value um, intrinsically and particularly because there's two countries that are quite sizable love gold and silver, but particularly gold. And, and China and India are the two biggest consumers of gold. I think they're like half the consumption, just those two countries. And, and it is. It's a little bit for investment, but it's more for use. And India, per, per compared to income, greatly outspends China. And India is going to be the next big country to rise like China. So I think gold and silver Will will be uh, the best part of the con- of some of the best parts of the commodity complex to buy, not because of the monetary metals. That's just going to keep eroding. Gold cannot is too clunky, too limited, to work in a world economy that's way bigger than in the past and 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 growing faster. The gold has outweighed. It was the monetary standard for a long time. It's seen its day, and I've been saying this for a long time, not just recently. So. I think gold holds up better. If, if, if I did have to have some commodities in my portfolio, I'd say, okay, I'll take the gold and not the silver right now. I take the silver. The silver is going to work better while it's still turning up. So that it gets kind of complicated, here, but I do not see, I definitely do not see unless we do end up getting inflation that gets out of control as soon. I'm just telling you, as soon as this economy gets weak, And as soon as these financial assets go down and debts start to unravel, (laughs) you're not going to see inflation for a long time. You're going to see deflation and very low inflation for a long time. So gold ultimately, and here's the most important point, gold is even more than silver, ultimately correlates the best with inflation. We've just seen, and gold had its best performance in history, and guess where? 1980, at the peak of the largest inflation cycle in history. And guess what caused that? People back then, all the gold bucks, they, oh, it's government deficit spending and blah, blah, blah. Boom! It was the baby boom generation entering the workforce at massive expense, unproductive people who cost their parents and governments and the whole economy everything to raise them and get them educated. And they hit the workforce in the early 80s and then started paying off and inflation went straight down. The baby boomers caused that massive inflation spike and the best run in gold. The millennials will not have that sort of inflationary pressure. And if there will be inflationary pressures in the next boom, it'll be in more places like India and Asia. It will not be here. So, so gold and silver are not going to, I think, I see their next boom having to do more with their real intrinsic value is that they're the most Some of the most concentrated valuable commodities. You know, obviously, you can't compare gold or silver to copper or lead. You know, they're just classier, okay?
0: Mr. Harry S. Dent Jr., I want to thank you so much for being with us today and for once again sharing your wisdom. I love your thought process and your passion. I think you see things very unique, and you have a very concise way of explaining your viewpoints. Thank you. Learn more about Harry by going to his website at harrydent.com. Please sign up for his free newsletter, and please keep an eye on Harry's other interviews as he's always offering perspectives that very few people have. Thank you so much, Harry.
1: Okay. I enjoyed it.
0: love and beer Yay! take it care and thank you so much for listening